Hello, everyone. Happy Black Friday. Welcome to your Friday Roundup. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. All right, super excited to dive into this past week's episode with Leslie Tain from Tain Law Group, Professional Debt Relief. And it's so timely as we are celebrating America's foremost consumer holiday, Black Friday. <laughs> to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Oh, man, I'm doing well. That is hilarious, right? How many billions and billions of dollars of debt are being incurred today on Black Friday? But it's 10% off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's basically free. So, yeah. <laughs> 25, 25%. What number will get you to come in this parking lot at uh, 4 a.m.? Honestly, Rick, can we talk about that for a second? Like, uh, my, some of my favorite Christmas movies are like the, the old Arnold Schwarzenegger one, like Jingle Jingle All the Way. Is that the one of them? And there's a, there's a couple more, but they all involve waiting in line for hours and hours and someone gets that special toy. The doors open up and there's pandemonium. That like causes anxiety in my soul. Um, 15 years later, I still watch the movie over the season, but it actually does. I've never waited in line. Like I hate waiting in line. Yeah. I rebel even at like theme parks. I can't imagine voluntarily doing that as a way to come back from Thanksgiving. Yeah, that sounds especially terrible for me. I, I though, in fairness, Laura jokes that I haven't been into a store in the last year or two. She doesn't so. even joke. It's been documented. <laughs> last yeah. time you went anywhere was to a Dick's Sporting Goods for a ping pong table. That was your last <laughs> observed time in a retail location. And that was a great purchase too. So it's funny. I actually swore that I would never stand in line on a Black Friday or for any kind of crazy toys for my kids. And I have held to that, though in fairness, I will come 100% clean here. I stood in line at 6 a.m. at Toys R Us a couple years ago when Toys R Us still existed for an NES classic. Do you remember when Nintendo released the old school Nintendo with like 50 games built in. It was like three or four. Wait, this is a present day story. You stood in line in present time? I did. It was like three or four years ago, but it was essentially for me to relive my childhood. This wasn't three or four years ago. This was after the start of Choose FI. (laughs) Like after the start of Choose, I remember you telling me about this NES classic. That happened? It happened, but I very quickly realized I was not going to get it. It was uh, a very, very long line and they had maybe 20 of these things. So I just kind of went online and I ultimately did find it after a lot of hitting F5 refresh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I was recently at Sam's Club and I was picking up some dog food and some other related stuff. And the lady was offering me an opportunity to upsell my discount. One of the upsells was that you're going to be able to come into Sam's Club early to get, take advantage of all the Black Friday discounts. And I can say, even in that moment, it had zero. The the fact that I could be there ahead of the lines, I never understood this. You're going to get a tent. You're going to get a thermos. You're going to get a can of coffee. You're going to get a chair. You're going to be there before there's a line. You're going to sit out there for hours. You're going to park your tent out as outside of the store for days in order to get, you know, I just, it it breaks my mind. There's nothing, there's nothing in this universe that could compel me to do that. MK, what are your thoughts? I have never stood in line on Black Friday since I've been an adult. I think a few times when I was a kid, we went to King of Prussia Mall because that was like 
the mall to go to on Black Friday. But now I just stay home and I order things online and (laughs) I order them well ahead of Black Friday when everything has been increased in price. Although I would like to try the Dwight Schrute method one year where I just buy up all of the toy that everybody wants and then I resell it to them and just sing... Fa la 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 ka-ching. <laughs> that was probably my favorite office episode because Dwight is definitely the most fi person of everybody on the show. That's and when terrible. he did that, I was like, oh, that's so smart. That's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he saw an opportunity and he took advantage of it. So it makes sense. All right. Well, thanks for adding to the spirit of the season. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Let's go ahead and switch gears here a little bit. I want to actually bring you into this conversation as well. We were just about to start discussing this episode with Leslie Tain. And one of the reasons I'm very excited to have you as part of this conversation was that you are the ones that re- like really told us this was an episode that we needed to have. And I know for you, it was a very personal episode to be included on the show. Yeah. So when I first talked to Leslie, so we connected through the FinCon group. So if you go and attend FinCon, you can join the Facebook group. And there's somebody who sets up, they're called Donut Buddies. Like you're supposed to go and get a donut together, but it's across the country. So you just end up chit-chatting. And I started talking with Leslie. And within a few minutes, I just wanted to be like, shut the front door. She is from the Northeast, which as you can tell by my accent, I am as well. She is a lawyer who helps people with debt. And my mom is a bankruptcy attorney. And Leslie helps out with service dogs for seeing eye dogs. And my mom runs a service dog academy in Pensacola, Florida. And I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you stalk me before this conversation to say all the right things? So we just really bonded and connected. So hearing about how she was able to get out of a financially abusive relationship, how she was able to raise her children on her own as a lawyer, I was just like, wow, you are retelling my life story to me. And that was so inspiring just to be able to connect with her and to know that there are these strong, amazing women out there like my mom, like Leslie, who are doing everything they can to provide for their children, who are financially strong, who have overcome some obstacles and are now going to be this great beacon of hope for people who are in the tough spot. They're in that bottom spot where Leslie was when she left her husband and she's saying, okay, well, I can do it because Leslie did it. I agree with you. I think Brad and I, when we put these episodes together, we think about who is this serving and also who have we not served as well as we should have, you know, with the episodes that we've done and recognizing that not everybody is doing this in a partnership and a relationship. Not everybody is doing this as a single adult. People are doing this with their own obstacles, their own life challenges and single moms and dads are crushing it, you know, absolutely crushing it. But to know that it's possible to know that somebody has pulled this off, to know that it isn't always perfect. Some people have to deal with financially abusive relationships and are coming out of that starting from scratch, digging their way out of pretty massive student loan debt, and then are not only able to resolve it in their own lives, but then are able to help others that are coming behind them is really, really encouraging. I thought one of the most powerful things that Leslie said in the episode when she was really talking about, I guess, a concept that maybe I've heard uh, Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook uh, kind of make famous, this idea of leaning in. But Leslie kind of pushed back on that and said, it's impossible. It is impossible to be the best parent and simultaneously be the best employee, the best business owner. But it is possible to seasonally at times, one week focus on really crushing it with your kids on another week, crushing at work. And you have to, you don't have the luxury of being the best at everything. So you have to pick and do the best you can and realize that that's okay. And to paraphrase, she said, some days the scale is tipped in the kid's favor. Some days it's in work's favor. And some days it's kind of mostly balanced. What she said was she was there for the important things. She was there for her kids' sporting events, for concerts, things like that. But 
there's always that give and take. And she was really very honest about that. She couldn't be the PTA class mom because she was working and she's a lawyer and her clients needed her. So she did the best she could based on this balance that was available in her life. There's no perfection for any of us. I just thought it was really refreshing to hear how she looked at this and how she really, like you would say, Jonathan, she crushed all these aspects of her life, but she did it in her way. And MK, you know, we don't have the opportunity to speak with Leslie's kids and kind of get their perspective on what it was like, but we, uh, we do have the opportunity to speak with you. And since you have reached financial independence, you and your husband did this in your early thirties, your mom raised you as a single parent and was at the same time doing something similar to Leslie, where she was helping people deal with dramatic debt. And if you were to think back to what this looked like in your mom's example, you know, drawing some parallels from Leslie, like how did your mom handle this? How did she prioritize? I mean, you're also an athletic person. Maybe there were sports along the way. How did she prioritize pursuing being fiscally responsible for herself and raising a daughter? Like, you know, what does it look like practically? You know, I think looking back, I realize how much my mom did that I didn't realize. You know, a lot of people say when they become adults, they realize everything that their parents did for them. You know, thankfully, my mom met my stepdad when I was in elementary school. They finally combined households before I hit high school. So there was another person who was there. But I mean, my dad was a blue collar worker. They were both incredibly hardworking you know, to the point of what Leslie said, like they just made it work. They figured it out every week what needed to happen to make it work. And I think that's the best gift that they could have given to me is to see that hard work, to see their drive, to set me up for financial success by showing me that hard work does pay off, that you live within your means, you don't spend more than you can. And now, you know, that's turned out to me meeting somebody who had the same values and ideals and we are in a healthy relationship and we have met financial independence. And I think that's the best gift you can give your kids. Yes, you want to be there for the big events and the things that are important to them. But looking back, the best thing that they gave me was a hard work ethic and seeing that hard work does pay off. And I wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about, you know, limitations and understanding that that's okay. And so with her, she was making this case, talking about sports. I think this is uh, sports and let's talk about just activities in general, um, setting boundaries. You know, I don't think this was called boundaries, but in many cases you have to learn how to say no to something, you know, so that you can say yes to others, figuring out where to set those lines and to figure out what to put your kids in, how much you can actually do from a bandwidth perspective. If you have multiple kids, she made this point. If you say, yes to one of them, you have to say yes to all of them in, in many cases. And just being realistic with what you can handle and what you can actually say yes to so that you can give them this consistent experience over time. I know, Brad, with you and Laura, you have kind of you could do all the things. You could do all the sports, but you've made a choice to do some things, certain things. And you know, adapting to that, your situation, and realizing that you don't have to do everything, nor should you do everything, is okay. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And she was describing how some of her clients got into debt paying for tennis for their kids. Meanwhile, they would have been much better off investing in tutoring. That would have given them a higher likelihood of a college scholarship, or frankly, they would have been much better off investing in the stock market, right? That would have been a much higher probability of success than investing in getting this absurd scholarship that is, they're so fleetingly rare. And so many people look at these things. And I've talked about my daughter, Anna, and swimming before, I mean, we have no thoughts of a scholarship. We're doing it because swimming is something she loves, genuinely. There are so many life lessons in just how difficult it is day after day to get into that pool. And it's a battle of your own mind as, as well as your body. But it's a lot about the mind. It's a lot of lessons for me 
that she, I can see she's picking up. This is a balance. This is something right now we've decided makes sense. And it's not cheap. It's a couple thousand dollars a year. And this is not something, hey, let's just jump in the pool and she can swim. This is a big commitment for our family, but we're doing it for her and because she loves it right now. And because we believe there are lessons, not with any thoughts of, oh, she's going to get some division one scholarship. So yeah, I mean, I think every family needs to look at their own priorities and what they're truly getting out of this, not does the neighbor next door, is that family in multiple sports? Are we keeping up with the Joneses in this sports sense? Like it's mm. very easy to do that, right? Which is sad, but I see it just here in my own suburban area. You know, I, I really don't want this to be the show where we're just bashing kids' activities or sports for kids or anything like that. I don't think that serves anybody, but I do think that it's important for parents to give themselves permission to step back and look at what is their intent? What's driving this? Are they doing this out of fear? Are they doing this out of this feeling like they have to get their kids have to get a scholarship for sports in order to go to school and they're willing to spend whatever it costs to do that. Just think about what's driving this. I, I, you know, to your point, you're a family of means, you know, you have achieved a level of wealth, uh, that you could probably do all the things if you really wanted to, at that point, your biggest limitation is your time, but most families don't find themselves in that situation or aren't in that situation. And if you have one of these kids, that's really good at sports. I mean, you heard like just the pattern there, all of her kids have injuries, like that, that they're keeping them from going to school. So even if you are willing to put all the money in because your kid is the best talent in the world, they are one injury away from that money being gone. So, you know, do things for your kids because you love them, because they enjoy it, because you can, you can afford it, but prioritize that and realize you need to prioritize your own savings, prioritize the savings for your kid's education first and foremost, because it is a, it is, there's a very small fractional chance that they are going to get the scholarships to go to school for that. I mean, if you decide that it's still worth it after having run ROI calculations and making sure that you've already saved in other capacities, but just be realistic, um, about how much money it's worth to dump into this when there's so many other more predictable ways of making sure that their college is paid for there. Are, do they really need the private coaching lessons? Are you all in on that hand or the same amount of money that you're putting into private coaching? Could you just be investing? That money would very predictably grow to the amount you need where you could just cover the difference, send them off to school if you need to. I mean, I, I there are so many careers where I see uh, parents putting, projecting onto their kids what they need to do and all of the kids' time and all of the parents' income are dedicated to the sole goal. And then the kid ends up resenting it or getting injured out of it or changing their interests. Kids don't know what they want. They change their minds every three months, you know? And so give them options and find out what they're interested in, but find a way to do it at a minimal or at least at a balanced cost in relationship to what you and your family can actually afford. There's probably a cost-effective way for you to get 90%. Let's say your child is really interested. Let's say your child they are growing as a person. They're maturing as a part of being a part of a sports team. There's so many benefits to engaging in sports as a kid. Is there a way to get 90% of the benefits without incurring all of the costs that's associated with the less intentional way of approaching it? I would say that with the vast majority of sports, there are. And so I think it's one of those things. This is not to tell you that whatever you have your kids in right now, you need to stop. Not trying to make that case. Just saying, if you've never thought about it, like what are your motivations for doing this? Nothing should be off limits. You should be able to have the conversation. And talking about the conversation, this is the final, this is the big point that Leslie was saying. She found herself in a, in a, in a situation with financial infidelity, in a situation with financial abuse, effectively, that was going on there. And it was largely predicated on the fact that, one, she didn't feel like she had permission or the right to ask for what's going on with our finances to get on the same page. And that is a shame, regardless of who is the breadwinner in the family, regardless of bringing in the finances, when you make the choice to partner your lives 
you know, to get in the, in the form of marriage or otherwise. At that point, there should be conversations about finances. At bare minimum, Leslie was saying when she would ask him, "Where are our finances currently?" He would say, "Well, you didn't get it. You didn't get a degree in this. Don't worry about it. You couldn't possibly understand." It was those sorts of comments, those underhanded, passive aggressive or not so passive aggressive comments. I was just thinking about what would it sound like that would be unassailable. And I won't, I'm not saying this would absolutely work, but just how to reframe it. And I think one of the most powerful things that you could do, if unfortunately you find yourself in that conversation where someone basically marginalizes your opinion, the obvious counterpoint would be, this is great that you're here and that you can handle this for our family. But what if you're not here? What if you pass away? What if you get injured? I have no idea where the money is. I have no idea how to take care of your child, our child in the context of your absence we need to have these conversations if only for your legacy. And that is kind of my biggest point with regards to conversations that my spouse and I have had with regards to financial planning. Yeah, that's interesting. Looking at it from that kind of unassailable point of view. If if your significant other comes back and says, yeah, I'm still not cluing you in on, on any of this information. Red flags. This is crazy, right? Alarm bells should be going off in your head. So yeah, I mean, just as kind of an intro to this, if you believe there are some issues, that's actually a really good strategy. Got to sneak like it on in there. Got to yeah. do what you got to do. And clearly there was so much other stuff yeah. actually going on. But I think for many people that may not find themselves there, but do feel like they're unable to start because of whatever, that kind of moves the playing field just a little bit. Yeah. And just kind of closing thoughts here. She said she wants to stress financial independence because you aren't in a safe spot if you are financially dependent on someone else controlling you and the purse strings. I thought- that was just a really wonderful and impactful quote, especially for the Choose FI community. We're all pursuing financial independence for important reasons, and this is really one of them. I know one of our goals for 2020 is really exploring this idea of communicating with your spouse or partner, uh, your goals, your visions, why you're on this path, and getting buy-in. And that is something that we'll continue to explore. But really, huge thank you to Leslie for being willing and being so vulnerable, willing to share her story and and how all the amazing progress that she has achieved. And what makes her progress so remarkable is what she had to work through. So huge thank you again to Leslie for coming on the show and sharing her story. We actually have a slightly different direction that we want to go with this next segment on the show. And we thought we could talk about end of the year tax planning. We've actually, uh, we brought Sean from the fitaxguy.com. Uh, he's coming back on the show. And what we thought we could do with this episode is kind of do an end of year tax checklist. I, I don't think, I can't think of very many things from an accounting perspective that would be more useful to the lay listener that has already started to get on their path to financial independence. And maybe their, their financial life is slightly more complicated than it was when all they had to do was pay off their debt. Now they're actually starting to think proactively. How, what does it look like to control my tax rate? What does it look like to optimize my financial picture and do that in a way that will minimize the amount of money that I'm just spending directly back to the government in order to maximize the amount of money that I can use to start saving towards financial independence? And so with that, Sean, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Brad, pleasure to be here. Well, let's set this up. There are certain things every single year that you need to do. And uh, as your financial life in a perfect world grows more complicated, right? And I mean that in the best possible sense, at some point you really do want to start thinking about a checklist. There is a pattern. There's a way to go about thinking about your financial life. And if we could have this checklist, it would make it easier to wrap our minds around, all right, it's this month I need to do this. So to kind of hand this back to you, what are your thoughts on that? Do you agree as an accountant? Yeah, I think it's, I'll give you a couple of thoughts. Well, one, what we're about to say is not particular advice for any one individual, right? You should consult your own professional, but what we're trying to do is raise awareness about things you should be thinking about at year end. And I do think year end is a good time to step back and say, hey, wait a minute, are there things I could do to optimize my situation, 
protect my finances, and then also look at year end as the beginning of the conversation going into 2020 for those long-term tax planning ideas, right? Year end is great, but what my main recommendation to the audience is you should be thinking long-term, not about any one particular tax return, but year end is a great way to start to you know, kick off that conversation about how am I going to tax optimize? And to our audience, we've actually put together a checklist for you that you'll be able to take away and we'll give you the information on how to get that at the end of this episode. But Sean, I guess for clarity uh, for our audience, at the top of this checklist, one of the first things you talk about is deductions. Is there a reason that we're talking about that first as opposed to maybe other, other techniques or considerations? I think in a post-tax reform world, deductions are now a little easier for folks. There's sort of a gating question around, are you going to take the standard deduction or are you going to itemize? And for 90 plus percent of Americans now, the answer is you're going to take the standard deduction. So I think that's sort of the first level of planning here is, am I going to itemize or am I going to take the standard deduction? If you're taking the standard deduction, then it's very simple, right? And you don't really need to think too much about itemized deductions. If you're going to take itemized deductions, then end of year planning can be pretty impactful, particularly with regards to charitable contributions. All right, Sean, so let's slow down real quick for the listener who's trying to determine they might have never jumped into their tax return before. They, I assume, should look back at their prior year return, their 2018 return, to see if they took the standard or itemized last year. And then what do you advise conceptually to determine, I guess, if there's some change? Are they possibly going to itemize this year? Like, Give people kind of back of the envelope calculation for that. Yeah, If you are single in 2019, you have to look at the number 12,200. If you're married filing joint, the number is 24,400. And there are essentially three big itemized deductions. The three big ones are state and local taxes, home mortgage interest, and charitable contributions. So if you live in Texas and you don't pay any income tax and you rent your house, and you're not so charitably inclined, and you're married, odds are you're not going to have $24,400 worth of itemized deductions. Remember, the big three being state and local taxes, mortgage interest, and charitable contributions. So I think you got to think about those big three. And for most folks, they're not going to get there for various reasons. And so they're going to do standard deductions as opposed to an itemized deduction. But if you're sort of on the threshold, right, you're single and say you have a high income job and so you paid, say, more than $10,000 of state and local income taxes this year. So now your deduction for state and local taxes is another new rule is capped at $10,000, but you need to get to $12,200. So where could you get the other $2,200 to itemize? Well, if you rent, you're not going to have mortgage interest, but then you could think about, well, am I charitably inclined or not? And if the answer is, yes, I'm charitably inclined and I've already given $5,000 to my church, well, I'm already at $15,000, I'm going to itemize. And then the question is, do you want to do more itemization this year, right? Do you want to accelerate deductions into 2019 instead of 2020? And then the question becomes, well, what's your taxes going to look like in 2020 versus 2019? Did you get a massive bonus this year that you're not going to get next year, right? Are you getting a big raise next year? Are you leaving your job next year? And so 2019 is really the high year. So there can be planning around, especially in the charitable sense, 
where do we put the deduction? Do we put the deduction in 2019 and we can do things like donor advised funds to sort of accelerate that deduction? Or do we put that deduction in 2020? So some of this is looking year over year to see where you are. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about deductions. I want to point out to our audience that we actually started this conversation back in episode 136. In that episode, we got a chance to introduce Sean, find out a little bit more about his backstory, talk about Roth conversions, funding your Roth for your child. And then we moved into uh, charitable contributions, how to handle those, which is what Sean just mentioned, one of the major tax deductions that you would consider. So to pair with this episode, for the sake of time, we're not going to go back to charitable contributions. Please listen to episode 136 if you want more information there. I will say, though, that one thing we just mentioned is kind of that look back to figure out whether or not you should be itemized or considering the standard deduction. One tool that most people have available to them is a tax projection calculator. And there's two that come to mind. I'll get your input on here. Obviously, you could go to the IRS website. Maybe that's a great choice. Uh, I personally have found myself using Intuit's free TurboTax calculator just for a back of the envelope calculation. And then also Smart Assets makes one that allows you to get some additional information broken down by state tax. As I'm filling these out, the one thing that I always feel like personally I've gotten stuck on and I've been able to come to some resolution, but I wonder if that's not replicated in the lives of our audiences, is the difference between an exemption versus a dependent. That is the one thing that many of these calculators ask for. And I always find myself thinking, all right, my wife, is she an exemption? Is she a dependent? If I'm head of household, how does that work? And I'm just curious as we kind of go through this conversation, because that seems to be the one factor that all of these calculators ask for. How does someone navigate that? And what's the difference? Jonathan, you're asking something that changed in tax reform. It used to be you had yourself and then your spouse and then your minor kids, generally speaking, as so-called personal exemptions. So you could claim a personal exemption for yourself, your spouse, and your dependents. Then they changed the law and they said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to up the standard deduction and we're going to get rid of these exemptions for individuals. So there are no more exemptions on your federal return, but dependents still matter because you generally get credits associated with your dependents. So the big one is the child tax credit. Most folks will get a $2,000 child tax credit on their federal tax return for their children 16 years or under, okay? But then you also have states, and most of the states have kept some sort of exemption system. So most of the states will say, well, count up yourself, your spouse, and your minor children will give you some sort of exemption so that you know when we're computing your taxable income, not only do you get standard or itemized deductions, you also get some exemptions. So Jonathan, I think that's part of the reason why you and others might be struggling with tax calculators is that they're testing for different things and the law changed back in 2017 in a sort of an odd way where dependents still matter and exemptions still matter for state purposes, but exemptions as a concept temporarily for the next decade or so do not matter for federal purposes. So as a follow-up to that, since you are still going to be answering that question when you see it on a tax calculator, it says, how many exemptions do you have for you and your spouse and two kids? Would, would that number be four? And then it just, on the calculator, it, based on the new tax law, it will not be, it'll be treated differently depending on your state versus your federal law? Yeah, Jonathan, I can't comment on any particular software, but what I can, what I can say is this. If you put in, you have four exemptions, and then you look at the output, and it says, hey, I'm going to give you child tax credits of, say, $4,000, and you have two kids, that sort of makes sense. But if it's saying, oh, we're going to give you an $8,000 child tax credit you know, at, at 2000 per child, and you've got only ch- two children, then you know something's up in the calculation. You got to go back. So Because I can't 
comment on what the interface that you're using is actually asking for? Is it asking for your children or for your total um, number of exemptions for state or for old federal purposes? Part of the problem here is that not all the software, the terminology hasn't been updated on all the software out there. So that's why we've got this confusion. You know, the law changed, terminology is baked in, and states haven't changed. And so it's this weird, we're sort of in this weird time in terms of that sort of stuff. So you're, you, I think this also just goes to a lesson in that <laughs> any software you use is as good as the input it gets, right? And yeah. if, if there's a, a user error in terms of the, navigating the terminology, you can run into a problem. All right, Sean, so let's get back to deductions. Can you just talk through, I guess, when these deductions or when these payments need to be made by? Are these... 1231 yes. of each calendar year. I know there's some interplay like with different IRA contributions and such that are maybe by tax return times. Let's start with that. Like what are the ones that need to be made by December 31st? Generally speaking, if it's not a retirement plan contribution, it needs to be paid by December 31st of 2019 to get on a 2019 return. There are some exceptions. The big ones are in the retirement areas, right? So your IRAs, your HSAs, things like that, where you usually will have until the tax filing deadline. But yeah, if we're talking about things like tax loss harvesting, accelerating business payments, charitable contributions, those sorts of things, December 31st is the big deadline. But there's even some nuance. I'll give you an example in the HSA area, right? So I said, oh, for the HSA, you could do till April 15th. That is technically true. However, you'd be well advised in most cases to structure it, to get it by December 31st through your payroll. And I say that because if you do HSA contributions through your payroll, you get the income tax deduction and you also get a payroll tax deduction. So if you're, say, making $80,000 at your job and you do an HSA contribution by December 31st, sure, you get an income tax deduction. That's great. But you also get to deduct that against the salary that you pay FICA and FUTA on. So now you're going to save an additional 7.65% that way as well. So there are some nuances here, but Brad, to boil it down, for the non-retirement stuff, December 31st, for the retirement stuff, you often can look past December 31st to your tax return filing deadline. Okay, that's great. And you said tax loss harvesting. So that is... I'll let you explain, certainly, but selling unrealized losses, are there limitations for each year? Talk us through that. Yeah, tax loss harvesting, you know, in, in today's market, that is generally going to apply to the so-called cats and dogs in your portfolio. Perhaps you have an individual stock or some mutual fund that, for whatever reason, has a built-in loss in it, so it's worth less than what you bought it for. The big limit there is $3,000 per tax return. So if, if you had no capital gains and no capital losses, you're sitting on a $5,000 loss stock, you want to get rid of it. If you sell it for a $5,000 loss, great. You get to deduct 3,000 of that loss in 2019. And then the remainder of the loss, the 2,000 would carry forward to 2020. And in the future, if you can't use it in 2020. The other time you could use tax loss harvesting is if you have a big capital gain, so say you had a $10,000 capital gain, you don't want to pay income tax on that. So you find a stock with an $8,000 loss, you sell that to harvest the $8,000 loss, and now your net capital gains are only 2000 So if I could point out, and, and, and this is half question, you know, 
while there is a cap on this $3,000 uh, that you can get for tax loss harvesting, if you're using it to wash out the gain, then that 3000 limit isn't there. Is that accurate? Or did I miss here? That's right. The $3,000 limit is after you apply all your capital gains. To go back to my example, say you had a $10,000 capital gain in March. Okay, that's going to go on your tax return. But in December, if you can find an $8,000 loss or even an $11,000 loss, you could sell the stock with the $11,000 loss and net to $1,000 of capital losses and deduct a net of $1,000 against your other ordinary income. All right. So state tax deductions, you said before they are limited now to $10,000 in a calendar year. Are you implying that you could make estimated state tax payments by 1231? And if you're under that 10,000, that even if the deadline might be January 15th or, or thereabouts for some states, you might want to make it by 1231 in order to get the deduction in this calendar year, in 2019 in this case. Yeah, Brad, on the checklist, when I talk about state tax deductions, I'm actually talking about deductions that you can claim on your state tax return. So out here in California, our standard deductions are much lower than the federal standard deduction. So you might actually be able to make a payment where you could get a state tax deduction by December 31st. So you reduce your state income tax. The big one out here in California is property taxes. So different municipalities work different ways, but you might be sitting on a um, build but not yet due property tax payment. So say your local property taxes are due every March and every October. You've paid your October payment already, and you're sitting on that invoice for March of 2020. You can go ahead and pay it in December, and that might be a good state income tax write-off so you lower your state taxes in 2019. So it's not so much of a play on getting the federal the federal deduction for state taxes it's lowering your state income so that you're you pay lower state income tax folks out here in california are pretty sensitive to that because of the relatively high state income tax rates we have out here yeah it's funny i guess everybody is coming from their own their own point of view and their own perspective right jonathan's question was <laughs> because he specifically uses these tax software items online mine was because I own my own business and I make estimated payments. So I'm thinking about the state estimated payment and the relation to federal. So that's kind of cool. Well, I'm glad we could both selfishly get out what we need from this episode, Brad. Thank you, audience, for bearing with us. (laughs) Sean, the next item that we have on this checklist is actually talking about accelerating business payments. I would imagine this would uh, apply more towards the entrepreneur, business owner. Tell us a little bit more about this deadline of December 31st, 2019 for accelerating business payments. Yeah, so most solopreneurs, right? Small business folks essentially file a Schedule C. And most individuals are on a cash basis of accounting for tax purposes. That means you recognize income generally when you receive the payment and you recognize the deduction generally when you make the payment. Say you have a monthly expense, right? Uh, I'll give you an example, rent, right? So maybe your rent check is due on January 1st. But you could theoretically just pay it on December 31st or December 15th for the next month. Generally speaking, in that case, what you would be doing is you would be accelerating the deduction into the year that you actually paid the amount. So you might say, oh, well, in 2020, I'm taking a sabbatical or in 2019, I had a lucrative client or a big gain. So I think I'm going to be in a higher tax bracket in 2019 versus 2020. Why not accelerate that payment into 
2019. If the vendors already billed me for it, but it's due in January, well, I'll just pay it in December. And this can be somewhat impactful also on the payroll tax side, right? So as a self-employed individual, you're responsible not only for income tax, but for self-employment tax. And if you then get a deduction, that goes into your taxable base for your self-employment income tax as well. So it could be somewhat powerful in terms of accelerating not only an income tax deduction, but a payroll tax deduction for the self-employed. So I wanted to come back to that just for a second. Is the primary benefit there the fact that you anticipate being in a higher marginal tax bracket this year as opposed to next year? Or really that is an aspect, but it really it's that paired with this payroll benefit as well? Um, Jonathan, you're generally right. It's a timing issue. So if you think your tax rates are going to be relatively equal over the two years, you might want to accelerate it anyway. But it particularly applies in cases where you think you're going to be in a higher tax bracket in 2019 versus 2020. And the flip is true, too, right? If you think, oh, 2020 is the year the business takes off, then, yeah, delay payments as long as you can into 2020 so that you take the deduction in 2020. Yeah, Sean, that's interesting. So even assuming same marginal tax rate, just from like a time value and money perspective, I assume you would want to accelerate the deduction to have the benefit in 2019 as opposed to just 2020 when it's still a year off. Is that reasonable? Yeah, because you, you know there are two aspects. There's the actual payment itself, and so the time value of money between December 31st and January 1st isn't that much different, but your tax refund coming in April of 2020 is better than in April of 2021. So there is some time value of money benefit there on the tax payment refund, essentially from the IRS. Not a huge benefit in today's low interest rate environment, but it could be something. Okay, and just last one, uh, selfishly again, accelerating business payments. I've always assumed that, so let's say I put a bunch of business expenses on a credit card. The credit card payment isn't due until mid-January, but if I accelerate the payment and, and make the actual cash payment by 1231, I assume I get the deduction. Am I, am I close there? So for most taxpayers who are on cash basis, which is 99% of the population, the credit card payment is good enough. And this works on the business side and the charitable side, right? So 1230, you know, you've got some time in between bowl games or whatever you're doing at year end. You can whip out your credit card, make a charitable contribution to your favorite charity or, you know, prepay a business expense that's due. That can work to get you the deduction. It's not when you pay the credit card bill. If you're on cash basis, it's when you make the payment with your credit card. Brad, this is like an entire reframe for your modus operandi at yeah, the end of the year. that is very, very helpful, Sean. Thank you. All right. Sean, is there anything else on the deduction side that we need to hit before we move on? No, I think we've covered the deductions pretty good. Cool. Let's go ahead and move to the next category here. And we talked a little bit about, so let's talk about income planning, right? And, and there's two components here, one being tax gain harvesting, which we spoke to a little bit about, but I think we could come back and, and highlight that again. And also Roth conversions. Yeah. So on the tax gain harvesting side, this is a limited opportunity but the idea is that if you are in the 12% federal income tax bracket or below, you can create a capital gain and pay a 0% capital gains rate on that, right? So that's very powerful because you get to reset your basis. So the example I'd give, right, you own Acme stock, it's worth $100, and you have a $30 basis in it. So you're sitting on a $70 capital gain. If you are in the 10 or 12% federal income tax bracket, you could sell that stock for $100 and then either reinvest in 
broad-based mutual fund or reinvest a day or two later in Acme stock again for a hundred bucks. And now you're sitting on, instead of a $30 basis in that stock, you're sitting in a hundred dollar basis in the future and you've paid no federal income tax. The one caveat on that is right state income taxes, right? So depending on where you are in your state, you might trip a little state income tax on that. Still might be well worth it. But again, this is an opportunity for those in the 12% federal tax bracket and below. This isn't really an opportunity for folks in the 24, you know, 32% tax bracket. Yeah, and it's interesting how people disproportionately inside the financial independence community have access. It's why you never hear about this really outside of our community. And we get so excited about it is a disproportionate number of people have this actually available to them because of the framework that you just laid out. Let's talk about Roth conversions and end of year planning. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about Roth conversions and there's a lot out there in the FI space around Roth conversions. The big thing here is if you're banking on 2019 being a low income year, so maybe you went back to grad school, maybe you lost your job and you just got a new job in November or December, and you think you're going to be in a low tax bracket, now is the time to look at those old retirement plans and think about Roth conversions. Those conversions need to happen by December 31st to get into your 2019 tax brackets. If you wait till 2020, any income created by a Roth conversion would be subject to your 2020 income tax brackets. And if 2020 is going to be a really good year, but you know, it, from an income perspective, it wouldn't be a good year to do a Roth conversion. Yeah. So both of these items, Roth conversion and tax gain harvesting, these are unusual to people who maybe this is the first time they're hearing about this or they're new to the FI community. We're actually creating a taxable event, right? But we're doing it very purposefully by saying, okay, for tax gain harvesting, if you're in the 12% federal marginal bracket or less, you can get a 0% federal tax on tax gains, which is remarkable, right? I mean, it's so unusual to think that way. And like you said, the Roth conversion, you're actually creating taxable income. But again, it's done with purpose. In this case, you are creating this taxable event now, but at a lower tax rate than you anticipate down the road. So it is very purposeful. And I know this is hard for people to wrap their minds around, but it's really, really important. Yeah, absolutely, Brad. It's all about putting income to the extent you can in those years that you have lower taxable income. And, and this happens, right? People change jobs, people take a sabbatical, people go to grad school. So there are, sometimes I refer to these as tax golden years. So they do happen. And if you're thinking, yeah, you know what? My wife and I just spent, you know, 10 months traveling the country and we're going back to our tech jobs next year. December is the time you ought to be thinking about, well, does that give us a unique planning opportunity? And Roth conversions would be a big one there. The tax golden year, AKA vacation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about tax protection. Uh, you know, I think uh, when you're talking about planning, comprehensive planning, there's a few things on this checklist that you should be considering. And some of them are one-off mechanicals. Yeah. You know, Jonathan, Brad, I think there's a lot of focus on how am I going to get my bang for the buck and do really interesting planning. And that's important, but protecting yourself and your finances is also important too. So I'll just give you a couple on my list here. One, and this will be much bigger 10 years from now, but it's starting to creep in, right? As folks pass away and they've had retirement accounts, they're leaving them to their heirs. 
and their heirs need to take so-called required minimum distributions from retirement accounts. The idea is you've deferred money from taxation for many years. When you reach 70 and a half years old or when you leave them to your heirs, that money needs to come out over time based on IRS tables. And so the, the deadline for taking money out of your inherited IRAs and retirement accounts, that's December 31st. If you miss that deadline, you could be subject to a 50% penalty. So make sure you've taken any RMDs if you've inherited a IRA or a 401k. And then for those in our audience who are 70 or above, you need to think about your RMDs from your own retirement accounts. You need to make sure you take those out by December 31st. And again, there's a 50% penalty if you miss these things. So Definitely make sure you're taking out your RMDs. It can get a little complicated, especially in situations with multiple accounts. So you might want to consult a professional there. And then two other ones that are can important. I, before, we go to the, before we go to the other two really important ones, can we just clarify this 50% penalty? Let's say your RMD was $200. That's what you yes. were due to take. And you did not take it for that year. What is that 50% assessed against? The 50% is assessed against your required minimum distribution amount. So in your example, Jonathan, if you had a $200 RMD, you missed it, technically you're now responsible for a $100 penalty and you need to take the RMD. Now you can apply for relief against the penalty, but it's not something you want to be, you know, that's not the situation you want to be in. Take the RMD, you're required <laughs> to take the RMD, so take it before December 31st. Okay, now, now uh, let's just play this out because someone, they have this penalty that's been assessed. They were supposed to take $200. Now $100 is now owed to the IRS and they have $100 left. But you said that this was all based around tax deferred income. Are they now responsible for paying taxes on top of that? Or was that encompassed by the penalty? Yeah. So no, they are responsible for paying taxes on top of it. So if you've missed an RMD, what you ought to do is one, seek professional help. But generally speaking, two, you should be taking the RMD and reporting it to the government and asking for relief from the penalty. Anytime you take money out of a IRA or 401k, you're subject to ordinary income tax, right? So that 200 is taxable. The penalty, unfortunately, is on top of it. But like I said, the IRS can waive the penalty. And so you need to be, you know, if you find yourself in that situation, it's usually best to consult with a professional and uh, work on applying to get that penalty waived. All right. Thank you for taking the time and the detail there. That was not a selfish question. That was one for the audience. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. Two other things I, I want to mention briefly here is your beneficiary designation forms. So this is, you've got a, an, an IRA, a 401k, other retirement account. Make sure you have completed your beneficiary designation forms and they are on file with your workplace or your financial institution. These are so important in terms of if you were to unfortunately pass away, these control, not your will, not your trust. These beneficiary designation forms control the disposition of your IRAs and 401ks and those types of accounts when you die. And these things should be updated regularly, right? So you get married, you have a death in the family, you have a birth in the family, you have other life events. You should be thinking about updating these beneficiary designation forms. Good advisors pound the table all the time on beneficiary designation forms. You should always check them at least once a year and make sure they're up to date. Then the other thing I want to mention is a, a relatively newer development in the tax world. It's called an IRS Identity Protection Personal Identification Number or an IRS PIN. 
These are now available to residents of 19 states in the District of Columbia. It's most of the very big states out there. Sadly, Virginia is not one of them, but most of the really big states have this available. And what you do is you file an application with the IRS online to say, hey, IRS, give me a PIN. It's, I think, a six-digit number. The reason I'm getting that PIN from you, IRS, is that I'm going to use this PIN next year to file my tax return. And if IRS gets a tax return in my name without that PIN and it's electronically filed, they're going to reject it. If it's paper filed, they're going to do additional verification procedures around that return. And the reason you do this is identity theft, right? Sadly, now there are scammers out there. And what they do is they say, oh, I can figure out that Mr. Jones has a job. I bet he or she makes, you know, $200,000 a year. I sort of come up with a phony tax return and I say that Mr. Jones overpaid his federal taxes by ten dollars or $20,000 and I direct the IRS to send the refund to my bank account instead of his bank account and all of a sudden I've stolen his identity to get a big tax refund out of the IRS and now Mr. Jones is going to have a whole world of hurt trying to file his return and get his rightful refund for the year. So this is a way to protect yourself against scammers. I've done a blog post about this. There are other resources online about this. Unfortunately, it's not available nationwide, but uh, most of the country in terms of population can now apply for an IRS PIN. And I think it's something you should strongly consider to help protect you against a scammer uh, stealing your identity and doing uh, tax return ID theft. Sean, is that PIN good for just one tax return? Do you have to do that annually or is that like a lifetime PIN? Talk me through that. So if you sign up for it, you're basically going to be in that program for the rest of your life. What they do is every year in January, they will mail you your new PIN. So they'll put it in your IRS account. So you you need to establish an online account with the IRS. They'll put the PIN in January in your IRS account. And they'll also mail it to your most recent re- uh, address of, of record. And so every year your PIN changes, which provides an additional layer of security. I'm a fan of this program. I just think that in, in our world today, and I've seen it happen where someone gets their identity stolen and then a tax return is filed. You know, Sure, you know that person has committed a, a crime against the IRS, but the downstream effect is now you can't just file your tax return like normal. You need to go through remediation procedures with the IRS, with you know the police and things like that. So it's not a fun thing. If you get one of these pins, the cool thing is when the scammer goes to file your tax return, you know, in your name in January and they don't have the pin, they'll file it. And the IRS, if it's an electronic return, the IRS is going to bounce it. They're not going to accept that. And now in February or March, you can file your regular return on time and you're in the clear because the IRS will have not accepted the scammer's tax return. Dang it, Brad. I want a pin. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Now, unfortunately, it's not yet available in Virginia. Um, hopefully, in, in, in future uh, filing seasons, it will be. The IRS has invited some people individually to join. It's generally people who have had previous identity theft, but it's not generally available in Virginia and in, I believe it's 31 states right now, It's but they're mostly the smaller states. Most of the big states, California, Florida, Texas, New York, fortunately do have it. All right, Sean, let's move on to tax advantage savings. Give us some some options people should be thinking about. 
Yeah. So the big one here in terms of deadlines is you generally have until April 15th of the following year to make your Roth IRA, IRA, or HSA contribution. And I think for those who are new to financial independence and tax planning, this is a very powerful opportunity. Hey, I've never heard of a Roth IRA until I, I found Brad and Jonathan on the Choose a Fi podcast. Well, great. You now have in January 2020, February 2020, you could do a Roth IRA contribution, a traditional IRA contribution, if it makes sense, or and or an HSA contribution. And then in the future, maybe plan to make your contributions earlier in the year. Um, that I want to go back to that HSA nuance, though, that we talked about a little bit earlier. I generally recommend if you're doing an HSA to try to do it through your workplace payroll if you can, if your employer offers that opportunity and you've got a high deductible health plan as your insurance, do it through payroll so you not only get an income tax deduction, but you also get the payroll tax deduction. You don't get the payroll tax deduction if you just write a check to your HSA. It has to be through your workplace withholding um, on that one. I have a question for you. As you talk about uh, the deadlines being April 15th for Roth or traditional IRAs, is there any nuance there when you're talking about backdoor Roth IRA? There's several nuances there. The big deadline on the backdoor Roth IRA is for those who already have money in a traditional IRA, SEP IRA, or simple IRA. For those of you who don't know, if you have money in a traditional IRA, SEP IRA, or simple IRA, it makes a backdoor Roth IRA very tax inefficient. I and many others have posted about this. You can look at, at materials online on that. But there is a planning strategy where you say, okay, I'm going to clear out my traditional IRA, SEP IRA, simple IRA by rolling that money from those accounts into my workplace 401k plan or 403b plan or similar plan. If your workplace plan accepts that type of money, and they don't have to, but many do, if they accept that, then what you can do is by December 31st of the year you want to do the backdoor Roth IRA for, you can move that money from the IRA to the workplace plan. And now you're, I'll use a very technical term, now you're clean, right? So you can do a backdoor Roth IRA the right way. The other thing to think about, though, Jonathan, right, you can do a backdoor Roth IRA in 2020 for 2019, right? But again, you've got to be clean. But assuming you're clean, right, for 2019 and 2020, in January of 2020, you could make a non-deductible Roth or traditional IRA contribution. And then I would recommend, say, in February of 2020, assuming your numbers all work, you could then do the Roth conversion piece of it. Now, the way you would file your tax return is you'd say, hey, IRS, here's an 8606, you know, reporting my non-deductible traditional IRA contribution for 2019 in 2020. And then in 2020, you'd say, hey, IRS, here's my Roth conversion, which hopefully yields relatively modest low income tax amounts. Here's my Roth conversion on what I had put in previously because the conversion happened in 2020, it's a 2020 event. There absolutely can be some nuance there, and you always want to make sure that you're clean in the year that you do the conversion. So I hope that answers your question. It does, Jonathan. and yeah, it convinces some nuances there. Yeah, and it does, and it convinces me and our audience why it's so important to find an accountant that is familiar with these with these tactics and strategies. Well, and, and Jonathan, can I just add there? So I've seen it where. 
people have done a backdoor Roth IRA and they say, great, I've done a backdoor Roth IRA. And then I look at their tax return from two or three years ago and I say, oh, you did a backdoor Roth IRA. Did you know you paid taxes on the entire balance? And part of the problem is some folks don't know how to report these things. And when I say that, I mean, even professional preparers, sometimes people don't understand how to report a backdoor Roth IRA. So it might be worth it to go back and look at your old tax returns. Oh, I did a backdoor Roth IRA. Well, great. Did you actually report it right on your tax return so you didn't pay additional tax on that? And if you catch it in time, there might be an opportunity to file an amended return to make sure your backdoor Roth IRA was properly reported. Because if it's not properly reported, you might have overpaid federal and state income tax. Sean, you said if you catch it in time, how long do people have? How many years do people generally have for federal purposes? I I know state, it can change, but for federal to amend an old return. Generally speaking, it's the later of three years from when you filed the return or when the return was due. So if you file your 2019 return in March of 2020, it's going to be three years from April 15, 2020 to amend that return. But if you filed after the filing deadline, say you were on extension, it's generally three years from the filing date of the return when you filed it after your extension. So three years is the main rule, and it, it's mostly keyed around when you filed the return. Great. All right. Now, I have actually been, I mean, genuinely surprised when you kind of take a look at our community as a whole, when you see how many people in the community have either started or thinking about starting a side hustle or already have a business and are using, you know, a, a solopreneur or entrepreneurial uh, business venture as part of their path to financial independence. And if you're thinking about things from a self-employment perspective, there are also some tax considerations to keep in mind. Absolutely, Jonathan. The big one I'm a fan of is the solo 401k. There's some stuff on the Choose If I website around solo 401ks. I've posted around solo 401ks. What it allows you to do is to use your self-employment to create essentially your own 401k. Now, you can't employ anyone other than yourself or your spouse for a thousand hours or more in the year, but a lot of folks out there in the FI community have sort of solo gigs that they've created self-employment or side hustles around. Great opportunity for retirement saving there because you can do both an employee contribution and an employer contribution, even though you may be your own employer. So it's a really neat opportunity. The big deadline for the solo 401k is you got to get it established by December 31st. You can't go to Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, another institution and say, hey, I had $100,000 of self-employment income in 2020. It's now January or 2019, sorry. It's now January 2020. I want a solo 401k. Too late, right? So you got to get it established in 2019. That's the big deadline. In terms of funding, that gets a little variable and depends on your business structure, you know, especially in an S corp or C corp, the employee side has to be done by December 31st in terms of the contribution. Generally, the employer side can wait till next year. The other one you could think about, if you're listening to this in the year 2020, and you know you're you're catching up on your old Choose FI episodes, you find this in say March of 2020, and you're like, oh yeah, I had a lot of self-employment income last year, and I didn't have a retirement plan. What you could do is a SEP IRA. Right. Fortunately, the deadline for the SEP IRA is October 15th if you file an extension. So that gives you a nice wide range of variability in terms of deadlines. There are some drawbacks to the SEP IRA. I've written about those. Others have written about those. But if if the drawbacks don't hurt you 
too bad. And a lot of those drawbacks revolve around this backdoor Roth IRA we just talked about. Say you have no plans to contribute to a backdoor Roth IRA, then maybe the SEP IRA is good enough for you. That one has a much later deadline of October 15th of the year following the year that you had the self-employment income. Sean, I have a question for you regarding the interplay actually between the SEP IRA and the solo 401k. What you're saying is you need to establish the solo 401k by December 31st of 2019 in this example. But let's say, like you said, somebody's listening to this in early 2020 and they realize, oh, wow, I would have been eligible for these retirement contributions. Can I quickly set up a SEP IRA in early 2020, again, back for the 2019 contributions? And then next year, I'd like to do a solo 401k. Like, Can they theoretically do both? And how does that work? Absolutely. So you can theoretically do both in one year if you wanted to. There'd be no real reason to do it for the same year. But yes, absolutely. You can have a SEP IRA one year and then go to the same financial institution or a different one and say, hey, for 2020, I want to do a solo 401k. If you're eligible for a solo 401k in 2020 and you had a SEP IRA for 2018, 2019, that's fine. Your business can just have two accounts. There's no problem there. They key off the same contribution limits. So you can't get around the contribution limits by setting up, oh, I've got a SEP IRA and a solo 401k, so I'm going to get more money into my retirement account. It doesn't work that way. They're subject to a sort of collective contribution limits. And to add, again, some nuance to that, determining, like we talked about the time variables uh, in between the the, four, the solo 401k and the SEP IRA and how one might be preferred, depending on when you're finding this and whether or not you're trying to play catch up on getting one established. The other point is you talked about the employee and the employer contributions. And I believe, and we don't need to go super in depth here, but I believe depending on how much money you're making as this freelancer, this contract, this solopreneur, Although they may key off the same amount, your ability to uh, get your employee, which would be up to that, that what, 19.5, I believe currently, and that employer amount, you're going to be able to get more from the employer side in with one over the other. Is that accurate? That's exactly right. And when I said they key off the same amounts, I meant that for the employer side, right? So that's the matching side. Solo 401k, I prefer it in part because of this employee contribution. Let's say you have a business and it's you're self-employed, you have a business, it's your only income, right? And you make $100,000. You could do either a traditional solo 401k contribution or a Roth solo 401k contribution or a combination of the both of up to $19,000 as an employee for 2019. And then you can add a matching employer contribution to that. For the SEP, you can only do the employer contribution. There's no employee contribution to a SEP IRA. And so that has two disadvantages. One, there's no Roth option, right? SEP is only traditional, while the solo gives you Roth and traditional planning ability. And two, the limitation is much lower overall because you don't have that first 19000 right? Let's say you only made $19,000 in your self-employment. Let's and let's say you didn't have a workplace plan with another job. You could do nineteen thousand as your employee contribution to a solo four hundred one k. You're done, right? On the SEP side, you'd be much. It'd be a much lower amount that you could contribute because you can't just do the flat nineteen thousand as an employee. And that actually perfectly answers my next question, which is: Let's say that this is a situation where you have, you know, a spouse partner situation. One of you is the primary breadwinner that funds all the family. The other one has started a side hustle. 
It is truly a side hustle, but it has become profitable to the degree that is making a, a, roughly the amount you just said, maybe eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars somewhere in that range. My question is, it is entirely viable using this solo 401k strategy for you to take that entire $18,000 and put it all inside of that savings bucket, inside of that solo 401k paying no federal tax at all because you have 100% savings. It's all being tax deferred. Is that accurate or are there any other considerations for the individual bringing in $19,000 each making the choice to save 100%? Yeah, let's assume your other individual has no other job, no other retirement plan, right? So if you make something like $19,000, there could be a lot of benefits here. Now, you do need to consider things like if you're paying self-employed health insurance, if you're paying, well, you will be paying some payroll tax on that. So that will mechanically lower the amount that you can contribute to the retirement plan just a little bit on the payroll tax side, but that will have to come in mechanically. But then, yeah, with the Solo 401k, what you you could do one of two things, right? Or actually, it's more than that. But what you could either make it all traditional, so just knock out the entire self-employment income by maxing out the traditional side. Now, in many cases, I don't like doing that, and there's this new deduction 199 cap A that sort of works into that. I and others have written about that. That gets complicated. Or what you could do is you could say, no, I'm going to do a Roth solo 401k. So I'll report all $19,000 of income on my tax return, and hopefully I'm at a nice low bracket in 2019, and I've now just squirreled away that $19,000 in tax-free savings to grow tax-free for a nice long time. All right, Sean, so the last category on the checklist is tax payments. Talk us through this. Yes. And you guys have actually talked about this on the podcast in the past, Brad, you went through estimated tax payments, right? So this is the a big one for your self-employed, but it can include, you know, W-2 folks. You need to pay in your taxes throughout the year. And the IRS has these rules around estimated tax payments, and it divides the year into quarters. They're sort of unequal quarters. That's just the way federal tax rules work. And so for those of you making estimated tax payments to Uncle Sam, you need to do your fourth quarter payment by January 15th of 2020. So you get a little 15-day extra on the deadline there. And then states vary in terms of that sort of thing. And then one that I see a lot of is folks who have W-2 jobs where for whatever reason they're underwithheld, right? So the tax laws changed, the withholding tables changed, and you might be looking at your situation and say, well, I owe, I'm going to owe 50,000 in tax this year and we're in the beginning of December and I've only paid 35,000 in. Well, what can I do? One thing you could do is you could go to your employer and say, hey, employer, here's my new W-4 and there's a box for an additional amount to withhold. So you could just say, look, I want to get this taken care of in December. I want to make sure I avoid or at least reduce any sort of underpayment penalty. So employer, for my last paycheck or my last paychecks, please withhold an additional amount, you know, several hundred or several thousand dollars, depending on your situation. And then in 2020, just make sure, you know, to revisit your withholdings. The IRS actually has a pretty good calculator on this sort of thing. So in January 2020, if you were underwithheld for 2019, you might want to use the IRS calculator and try to get better withheld for 2020. Sean, that all makes sense. The key is avoiding those underpayment penalties. I actually just went through this exercise with my wife, Laura, who's our in-house CPA, and just trying to determine- He means in-house, in-house <laughs> Quite literally, <CPA>. in-house, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to determine, have we made enough federal and state estimated payments for 2019? Do since 
we don't have a cash flow issue, right? We're financially independent. We have assets, clearly. So I'm not worried about being short on estimated payments. I basically just don't want to send too much. I, again, time value money. I'd love to hold on to my money as long as I can, but I want desperately to avoid those penalties. So what we do is we look at the safe harbor provisions, and based on our 2018 tax return, it, and I'd love for you to actually talk about the safe harbor provisions and how that works. Because a lot of people in our audience are entrepreneurs. They're sending in quarterly payments, and this is especially pertinent to them. Yeah, the big thing you need to do is take a look at your 2018 tax return. Go find your 2018 tax return, look at page one of the 1040, and find the line that says total tax. That's essentially what you owed for 2018, for getting payments and things like that. Find that total tax line. That includes your payroll tax, your income tax. Take that number. And if you made less than $150,000 last year, you need to make sure you pay in that number, that total tax number in 2018, in 2019 to avoid this penalty. And it technically needs to be evenly distributed throughout the year, either through withholding and or estimated tax payments. If you made more than $150,000 last year, then you need to take that total tax line and multiply it by 1.1. You need to pay in 110% of last year's amount of tax due. If you do that, then you will not have a penalty as long as those are equally paid out. So think of a lottery winner, right? So you have a W-2 job, you make $100,000, great. And then in December of 2019, you win the lottery. Now you have $100 million of taxable income. How do you avoid the penalty? You pay in 110% of last year's taxes, right? As long as you pay in 110% equally throughout the year, you're good, even though you just made $100 million on the lottery. And then in April of 2020, you'll write the big check, but you fell into that 110% safe harbor so you don't owe an estimated tax penalty, even though the check you're going to write to the IRS in 2020 is going to be enormous. So is this a de facto position where the IRS assumes you're making 10% more every single year or you're always making like that, that's what it feels like. Well, how do you know I'm going to make more? Last year I crushed it. This year, eh, not so much. Off year. Yeah. So Jonathan, you remember these are safe harbors. So let's say you made $100,000 last year and you make only 30000 this year. Well, as long as you pay in 90% of the tax on that $30,000, you are okay too. So you don't have to always base it on that $110,000 number. The $110,000 number comes into play when this year's income tax or in income will be over $150,000 and you're going to do better than last year. You get right? to pick. That's, it's either or you get to pick, but you got to fall within one of those parameters. Yeah, either 90% of the current year tax or 100 or 110% of last year's tax and 150,000 is the Mendoza line on that, Mendoza. right? So there you go. Um, I hear what you did but there. Anyway, <laughs> maybe that'll be the Mendoza line there going go. forward, 150,000, because <laughs> um, that actually has a lot of, uh, has a couple other impacts in tax too. But anyway, it's trying to avoid this penalty. And you guys have actually talked about this. If you wind up subject to this penalty, you can essentially file with the IRS and say, hey, IRS, I tried, you know, please forgive this penalty. And sometimes they will. They're not under an, an obligation to, but they may. Sean, someone's listening to this and I know they're going to want to follow up with you. I know you referenced a lot of articles. They're going to want to find those articles and read through those, or they may want to schedule a consult. Uh, what is the best way for someone to connect with you? Yeah. So you can connect with me three ways, right? On Twitter, I'm Sean Money and Tax. 
You can reach my blog at fitaxguy.com, or you can reach my financial planning firm at mulaneyfinancial.com. Sean, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. All right, to our audience, if you got value from today's episode, and if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us in what we're doing here at ChooseFI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. To do that, just go to ChooseFI.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of Fi, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to chooseify.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cap. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 100. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.